Hello. Uh, hello. I got two free smartphones when I switched to Metro PCS. One for him and one for me. Uh, it's not for you. It's for people like me. And parents. Uh, I knew I should have gotten a dog. Get two free Samsung Galaxy J3 Prime smartphones when you switch two lines to Metro PCS and enjoy a 4G LTE network that's more reliable than ever before. Metro PCS. Wireless figured out. Coverage not available in some areas. Sales tax not included in phone price. Excludes numbers on the T-Mobile network are active on Metro PCS in past 90 days. See store for details, terms, and conditions. Blog Talk Radio. Reality Radio Entertainment presents Behind the Curtain with your host, Kathy Barrett. Welcome to Behind the Curtain, a show about life and how we navigate down the not-so-yellow brick road of it. I'm your host, Kathy Barrett. Thanks for tuning in and welcome to the program. The United States is known as the Incarceration Nation. We incarcerate 754 people per 100,000, when the average in the world is around 160. Restorative justice may be the most powerful key to stopping the revolving door that is the criminal justice predicament. What you are about to hear today is bittersweet. I hope that my listeners from around the world will share this story. I will do my part to get it in the hands of educators and leaders in America because it is so important that we continue to work with restorative justice in this country and around the world. The story today is about restorative justice and how it is saving and transforming lives. James Hodgkinson was 28. He loved his family. He had a passion for caring about other people and watching football. He was a paramedic trainee, having a day off with his mates and his family, enjoying football and a night out on the town. Jacob Dunn was 19, and he also came from a loving family. But after dropping out of school, he had little going for him in terms of prospects. It felt like society had given up on him, and in in a way, he began to give up on himself. He was out celebrating a friend's birthday as well, but became separated from his mates. And one phone call from his gang, who often got into brawls after drinking on Friday nights, like many 19-year-olds do, or in the States, you have to be 21, this sent Jacob Dunn to stand by them. To show his loyalty, Jacob, unprovoked, knocked James to his death with one single blow. Jacob ran off that night not knowing that James Hodgkinson was in a coma for nine days surrounded by his devastated loving family who were now forced into the excruciating painful position to pull their beloved son off life support. After Jacob found out the police were looking for him, he turned himself in and was charged with manslaughter sentenced to 30 months, and served 13. His mental state was worsened, his prospects dimmed more, his anger escalating. In his eyes, he was a victim. How could his friends snitch on him? How could one unlucky punch land him in jail? His own family's lives were shattered by his actions, and yet his only thought of the situation at the time was in terms of himself. Prison life and his fellow inmates reinforced this mentality, and Jacob would no doubt soon find himself right back in the criminal justice system. And then one phone call changed it all. 
his parole officer asked, have you heard about restorative justice? In 1996, a charitable organization called Remedy was founded by Rob Unwin in Sheffield, South Yorkshire, in the United Kingdom. They had one simple aim of offering victims of crime the opportunity to engage in a restorative intervention with the person responsible. Remedy began as a small project working in partnership with the Sheffield Probation Service. It was originally known as the Sheffield Mediation Service. Remedy began with one person. They now employ 110 practitioners and over 90 volunteers, and they are the single largest provider of restorative services for youth and adults in the criminal justice arena, as well as national training providers. We have on our program today Nicola Bancroft, an assistant director at Remedy, who facilitated the conference between Jacob Dunn and Joan and David, the parents of deceased James Hodgkinson, in September 2015. Nicola began as a a restorative justice practitioner in 2005. She was promoted to manager, and then in 2010, she became the assistant director. I am very blessed to also have on the show the courageous and compassionate parents of James Hodgkinson, Mother Joan Scourfield, and Father David Hodgkinson, as well as Jacob Dunn, the young man responsible for the death of James Hodgkinson, who has completely transformed his life. Let's begin with Nicola Bancroft from Remedy. First of all, Nicola, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Kathy. Thank you for having us on the show. Thank you. And again, my eternal gratefulness to you for not only the work you do, but for setting this all up today. No problem at all. It's important to share this um, really powerful story. So how did, let's start with, how did the process of bringing Joan and David together with Jacob begin? Well, Remedy are commissioned nationally by the Victim Support Homicide Team in the UK um, to deliver restorative justice um, for those people that have been bereaved through murder or manslaughter. <clears throat> we received a referral through the Victim Support Homicide Worker um, when uh, David and Joan said that they were interested in having some form of communication with Jacob. Um, so myself and another volunteer, um, Jan Warwick, we went out to see David and Joan in their home um, to discuss you know, what they might um, want from restorative justice and to explain how the process works um, because it's a completely voluntary process for everybody involved. Um, so we, we, you know, we talked through exactly um, what it was that they wanted and how we needed to take the next steps to proceed to see whether Jacob was interested in taking part as well because he could have chosen not to take part in restorative justice. So uh, can we, uh, Joan and David, uh, can, can we talk about what it was that made you want to get in touch with Jacob? What did you want to ask him? Just talk about that process a little bit for us. Well, I think um, going through the normal channels, you, you don't get any answers to the millions of questions that are, that are going around in your head. And mm-hmm. this was a way of getting those answers. Um, myself, uh, I've never heard of a restorative justice again or a victim support guy made the suggestion and, and I think it is a service a lot of people still don't know about the support they, they, they do. Um, so 
Well, it's a very slow process. You, it's, it's something that's got to be gone at a pace that suits both sides and handled very carefully. And as Nicholas said, it's, it's got to be that both sides want to do it. It's totally voluntary. But for me, it, it, the, the first thing was getting answers. I couldn't understand why Jacob had done this, what had led him to that point that he, that he did this. And um, you, you've just got so much frustration when you don't understand what's happened and why it's happened. Uh, so, so that was the beginning, really, for me, uh, is getting answers. And Joan? Um, yeah, I just um, wanted some answers to the questions, but also um, the police had done their job. They'd done it very well. Obviously, they'd caught Jacob. Um, but 14 months for James' life didn't seem fair, and I wanted to see what sort of character Jacob was and whether, you know, this was going to happen again. Well, first of all, let me say I am so sorry for your loss, which I didn't say to you folks before. You know, to lose a child is a, a terrible thing, and James seemed like such a lovely man, such a caring man. The fact that something has crazy as this can happen must have been incredibly devastating for you and your family, as well as for Jacob. Uh, Jacob, let's hear from you now. What, When you found out that this one punch had killed someone, what was that experience like for you? Um, devastating, really. Um, I was just shocked, scared, um, didn't really quite know what to do. Um, just, you know, every emotion you can possibly imagine other than happiness. Um, yeah, just kind of... Hard to, hard, it's hard to put into words um, how it felt. Um, but, you know, it's just not a very happy place to be. I do admire the courage and the way that you've turned your life around, and we'll, we're going to talk more about that. Thank you so much for also being on the program today and for letting us into this experience in a, in a deep way so that people will really get the message that you're all trying to get out and into the world. So, Nicola, you said it was a long process. Can we share with people what the process is like? It's very much led by the people that are involved and what they feel comfortable with. Um, so there are two different ways that restorative justice can happen. Um, it can be through the exchange of letters or messages. And for some people, that's where it remains because they don't feel comfortable necessarily meeting the person. Um, whereas for other people, they um, they really you know they're really keen to meet the person responsible for committing the offence because. They feel that they need to see them in person to see truly, you know, how they feel about the crime that was committed and, and to see that kind of genuine remorse. And um, so it, for some people, um, they will correspond through letters first and then move to a meeting. For others, they may go straight to a meeting with correct preparation and, and you know, making sure that we've risk assessed it correctly. And the timescale involved is, is based upon how comfortable everybody is with that. So... In this particular case, um, both David and Joan had said that they, they, they knew they wanted to meet Jacob, but not necessarily straight away. And in fact, on the first meeting, um, both David and Joan said, it, you know, it could be 10 years before we feel ready to meet him. Um, they wanted to exchange questions. Um, and for myself and my colleague to 
um, I suppose to, to be the, the person in the middle sharing Jacob's answers and his responses, not just in a kind of written format, but also in terms of how he, he came across in terms of his body language um, and the remorse that he was showing through us. Um, that was passed through to David and Joan, and that helped them to understand and to feel more comfortable with moving towards the face-to-face meeting. Um, so it took two and a half years in this particular case. Um, wow. And one of the things that David and Joan both wanted was to see that Jacob was committing to the things that he said he was going to do in terms of turning his life around before they felt ready to meet him. For some people, it could be six months before a meeting takes place. Um, it very much depends on the offence type, um, how, you know, the support that everybody has involved in the process and where they're at in terms of their, their emotional well-being, really. That's really extraordinary, um, a process. And, and Jacob, for you, how was that process as they began to ask questions? You know, where, what was your state of mind at the time, at the beginning of this, and how did it transform? Um, well, for me, when I first heard that David and Joan wanted to um, contact me and ask me some questions, uh, that was the first time for me, really, where I stopped feeling sorry for myself um, mm-hmm. and started to appreciate that there were people, other people in this process um, that were probably hurting more than me. and. That's where I took the decision to take part in restorative justice. And at first, I didn't think I would gain anything from restorative justice personally. I thought mm-hmm. that I was just, you know, doing the least I could in a in a very bad situation. Um, and then, as I started to have these questions put to me, it started to make me question, you know, the man I was and who I wanted, the type of person I wanted to be, and. Um, that was the starting point for, um, you know, taking responsibility and trying to live a more meaningful life. Well, I know this is very personal. Can you give us an example of some of the questions that Joan and David were asking you that kind of led to to you beginning to shift your consciousness and your way of being? Yeah, it was, um, you know, the, the questions of why I did it, um, and that was a difficult question for me to answer because I felt ashamed of the response because mm-hmm. there wasn't any um, there was no there wasn't a right answer and you know the, the real reasons why I was behaving the way I was back then was shameful um, and, it, and it made me really start to be critical of myself and then when they asked me questions about well, what, what do you want to do with your life um, what type of person are you you know, all these questions helped me to be honest with myself about who I was and where I was going. And mm. that allowed me to, um, yeah, be, be honest with myself through being critical and um, start to have a long, hard look at myself and the way I treated people around me. Um, and, yeah, just that, that, that ultimately led to me you know, making the decision to go back into education. When you walk through that door to meet them in person, how was that experience for you? Um, 
it was a very surreal experience. I, at first, I struggled to open the door, um, but it had been a long time coming. It was two and a half years that we'd been communicated up until that point, so I already had a kind of sense that, although I'd never met them, I felt like I at least understood both David and Joan and had a had some form of connection there, so that made it easier to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it felt for me like a a bit of a weight had been lifted off my shoulders after after the meeting. Um, and yeah, it was a it was although it was really difficult and really hard at the same time, it was quite a it's very difficult to try and put into words. It, it, it was both sad and happy to put it in simple terms. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, yeah, it's just a very surreal place to be. It's the last place you'd ever expect to be sat around a table with. It's the last people you'd expect to be sat around a table with, but it felt like it was so right to do it. So. I admire your courage for meeting with them. I, I think it's great that you did that. Joan, how about for you? The first time that Jacob walks through the door, what's what's going on for you now? Well, before um, we met Jacob, we had some idea of his character that obviously didn't mean to do what had happened. And, um, but the only visual picture we had was the mug shot by the police, which mm-hmm. I still think haunts Jacob. <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely not platform for him. Um, but obviously when he walked in, you then just see um, a decent young man, whereas it was the thugs that hit James. Um, and I think he's just transformed himself completely. Um, and he's still on that journey. And it's it's uh, due in, in part, I would say, to you and David, really. You know, and the openness and compassion and the space that you held uh, for him to be able to have that transformation. David, what was seeing uh, Jacob like for you, finally, to meet him in person and speak with him? I think, well, the last image I I had of Jacob was when we uh, went to court, when Jacob was actually sentenced and he was um, in the dock. And... um, was just looking down at his feet, basically. Um, and, yeah, looked pretty much like the mugshot. You know, that was the last, that was the last sort of visual image I, I got in my head of Jacob. And obviously we'd had uh, this um, substantial period of time where we'd exchanged questions and answers and got to know Jacob. And, and Jacob had started doing exactly what we, we, we'd asked of him um, uh, with his education and um, uh, you know his goals, his whole uh, whole um, thing was was um, positive. So while while I was very nervous about meeting him because I wasn't sure quite what I was going to think, it's a very big thing to do. And I know there are people out there that wouldn't agree with what Joan and myself have done at all um, and wouldn't understand where we're coming from about it. But um, to see Jacob that day, um, you know, I've got a lot of respect for for him, that he has stuck to his word, he's done everything 
he said he was going to do, and actually, to be honest, a lot more than I thought he would do in, in what, he, what he's doing now and going forward. Um, yeah, I'll never get over the loss of my son, and I think maybe people sometimes think, oh, well, that's okay, you know, they're, they're acting like it's all right, it's not all right, it's very yeah. painful, uh, we live with loss every day. But Jacob is doing something useful, he's, he's making his way um, in a positive way to society, and to, um, you know, just because somebody's done what was basically a very stupid act on the night with too much drink, and people like that sometimes just end up in the prison system for the rest of their life. And what, what good's that doing? Uh, so, yes, the first meeting, it was hard, but also I could see how far he'd come. And it, and it took a lot of guts for him to, to meet us and to do what he's doing. So, it, very positive. I think you're all courageous, so courageous, really, and, and just such a, a shining example for people around the world. Despite the tragedy, what you have created from this is now a platform to take what happened to you and spread it around the world to help other people and prevent this from happening to anyone else. And I think it's, it's just, I applaud you all. I think you're all amazing people for taking this on. I, I just can't thank you enough and, uh, and applaud you enough for what you're doing. Now, Nicola, while this is going on, can you talk about what you're seeing from your perspective? Um, it's, it's, it's surreal from, from my perspective as well, because um, from the moment that I met um, David and Joan and Jacob, um, you know, when those initial meetings, you're hearing such raw emotion, um, and you can see the potential benefit that communication with each other could bring. You, you know, you hope that it will get to that point where they feel able to do that because you can see that it could be really beneficial. Um, and to have been on this journey um, and to continue to be on this journey with everybody involved has, has been, you know, it, it's been an honour for me, really. Um, and to, to see where they are now, um, you know, for us to be able to sit in this room together and, you know, to see the work that they're doing together to raise awareness of the One Punch campaign, which is really dear to both David and Joan's heart and Jacob's, to make sure that other young people, you know, don't end up in that similar position. Um, it's it's such an important message to get out there, and and we are changing, and they are changing the future for other young people and preventing other people from going through this. Um, and you know, restorative justice has been, I suppose, it's the thing that brought that together um so yes it's very much an honor for me to still to still see the work that's going on um and as an organization we have said that we'll continue to support that message and that campaign that they're working on together um you know in, in whichever way that they would like us to continue to support that going forward that's wonderful can we let's let's uh, take a moment to talk about the one punch campaign then david would you like to, to share a little bit about it yeah, sure. I think, first of all, again, it, it's, it goes back to the fact I didn't know anything about this until it happened to my son. And that's a big problem. Um, 
people don't understand that literally one punch can kill somebody. And most of the time, it's not the actual punch. It's the fact that the person hits their head mm. when they uh, are not over or not unconscious. And the brain gets shaken about violently within the skull. And this is what, what causes the damage. Um, some people survive, but are maybe in a wheelchair or severely disabled, have a lot of problems. So it's, it's very important to uh, get the message across that no time is violence acceptable. Drinking or not drinking, drinking is, is a big problem. Uh, um, it does, it does um, probably make, make it more likely that some of the tendencies of violence will, will lose their rag and, and hit somebody. But it doesn't, road rage is another thing. A person doesn't have to be drunk. They could just yeah. get the red stuff there and hit somebody for no reason at all other than maybe they pulled out in front of them. Um, we've, we've got to make people aware that um, this is not acceptable in, in uh, the 21st century in modern society. And mm -hmm. I also though, believe that um, as well as um, an education system uh, to make people aware of this, that those that um, do not want to abide by the laws and be reasonable and act as decent people, the punishment has to be a lot more severe. Um, you've heard um, what Jacob was sentenced to, and it is a big shock um, as a parent to find out that actually your son's life, uh, as far as the custodial sentence goes, is worth less than a possession. People get, in this country, longer sentences for robbery, which is absurd. That is. So it's a two-pronged attack. It, it's education, and it's also harsher punishment for those that um, decide they're not going to um, listen to, to what they've been told and uh, think that violence is acceptable. And Joan? Um, I think, you know, the one punch, we've got to get the message across. I feel that, you know, people aren't aware that one punch to the face or head can kill somebody or, you know, totally injure them. Um, James is a very young, fit man. Um, he did a lot of cycling and other sports. And also with his um, paramedic job, he was very fit. Um, and seeing him laying in that coma, we just thought he couldn't be taken from us because he was you know, his heart and everything was young enough to fight it, but obviously the brain injury was too much, which was just caused by the punch. Um, the sentencing for Jacob, although at the very start, the 14 months was very bitter, talking to Jacob about the time he had inside, he's learned a lot more from the restorative justice than he ever learned inside. So it's hard to say whether it was the right sentence for him or not, because I just feel we've done so much more from him inside. So maybe looking at the sentence, and yes, but also looking at what's going on in the prisons. Jacob had no rehabilitation in prison at all, and that is a big thing we've got to get across. When they're in prison, we have to try and support what the problems are. I think that's an excellent point, and it's really not being done anywhere around the world, to my knowledge. I mean, there, you know, there's no rehabilitation happening, and I can see that uh, being critical, especially if this program can start not only 
you know, educating people and in, in, uh, children in schools, but there should also, they should have this immediately when people are put into prison, because if they're setting off in this direction, then the outcome is going to be far different when they get out of prison. And Jacob, you're a perfect example of that as without having any guidance inside, when you came out, you were being homeless and not having, you know, opportunities for yourself. So how is the campaign yeah. going for you, Jacob? Well, as you say, it's, it's very easy under those circumstances coming out of custody to just give up because a lot of the time people who are coming out of custody don't really have, um, as you say, much going for them. And a lot of the time people need a reason to change their lifestyle. And if there's no, there's no hope or there's no prospects or there's you know, no kind of light at the end of the tunnel for anyone, the easiest thing to do is to carry on either committing crime uh, or, or going back into prison because a lot of the people that I met in prison, they felt more safe in prison than they did in society. Felt more, they had more stability in prison and they felt safer in prison than they actually did in society. And so something that I want to um, look at through the One Punch campaign, I've been speaking in schools, been speaking in prisons, youth offending teams, many different settings as I can. And what I'm interested in is not just raising awareness of the fact that one punch can kill. I think we've done quite a lot to get that message across through you know, TV documentaries and spreading our message uh, through platforms like yourself, but also looking at why people are throwing the punch in the first place and getting people to look at why they're throwing the punch in the first place. Because... Throwing a punch and inflicting harm on someone, no matter what your intentions is, is it's driven by your emotions and by some sort of anger within. Mm-hmm. And that anger can be, you know, due to whatever's gone on in your life. And for me now, what I've realised is I'm in such a good place now in my life that I really care about myself. I really care about my own well-being and my own, you know my own physical health. And when you really care about yourself, it's hard to inflict harm on another person when you really appreciate your own health. And so what I begin to realize is that when people are fighting or trying to inflict harm on other people, it's because there's, there's some harm going on with inside that needs to be resolved. And through my work in prisons, I've been able to identify that a lot of the time, I put questions to people in prison and I say, what do you do to be kind to yourself? And a lot of the time, they don't know. They say, I don't know, I'm not kind to myself. And when we're not kind to ourselves, that leads to depression, that leads to alcohol, or mis- substance misuse, it leads to all the different things that we see that are correlating with people committing crime. And so my challenge with the One Punch campaign is to get people to care about themselves so that they don't harm anybody else as a result. You bring up a very, very important point that when someone is trying to inflict violence on someone else, it's because they're in great pain themselves. And without the awareness of understanding what's going on internally, there's no way to really get in touch with the fact that there's other ways to take that fury and rage and depression and 
all those negative feelings and channel them in a different way. So what you say is so important, and, and this is exactly the kind of programs that should be out there. As an example, meditation, uh, you yeah. know, it's not a religious thing, but it's something that gets people to stop focusing on things that are happening outside of themselves and to go within and really sit in the silence and get in touch with their own feelings. But I mean, there's an opiate problem right now around the world. There's nothing but numbing going on. So the fact that you guys are really this peaceful army of warriors, you know, stepping out to raise the, the awareness and the consciousness about these very important topics is just so great. I can't say enough good things about it. I'm so excited. You know, I can't wait to take the show and spread <laughs> it around here. I really am. I mean, there are certain states in America now, I think it's uh, Colorado and Ohio, uh, where there's, you know, representatives and senators that are talking about restorative justice and the success that it's having there. But, you know, you think a place like a New York state where so many, you know, prisons here that they would be, you would hear about it here. And I haven't. And that's why when I read about your story, I was, I was so inspired by it. And I said, my God, this is like, this is what we should be doing. This is how we should be reaching out to people. We're all connected heart to heart. We are all connected. As you say, Jacob, you see how much better your life is now because you're connecting to people, because you're taking care of yourself, because you're not only loving yourself, you're loving everyone else. You're walking into this prison and connecting with strangers. We're, which is something, if you think back, I'm sure you, you would say, yeah, I would never think that my life would turn into this kind of situation. And it's, it's miraculous what love and forgiveness and compassion can achieve when the intentions are pure. So when, when you um, think about um, prisons themselves, they probably lack that the most. Um, mm. And they, they are places full of people who have lacked compassion and, and kindness. And, and as a result, they have stopped becoming um, compassionate and kind to themselves. Um, and so, yeah, what you say, you know, kind of hits the nail on the head, I guess, um, is that through human connections, because it was, you know, when I met David and Joan, I not only wanted to say sorry, but I also wanted to thank them because they um, were able to, through a bit of compassion, whether it was intended or not, um, they were able to help me be compassionate to myself again and to, and to care about myself again. And then once I started to care about myself, I started to realize I care about other people. And, and then that inspired the work that I'm doing. And just another point is that it was, although meeting David and Joan was extremely important for my transformation. It was also the skills that taking part in restorative justice gave me, which was just as important, which was able to sustain my um, level of commitment uh, and belief in myself. And that was being restorative. So mm -hmm. that you can take part in restorative justice, but then for me, it led me to be a restorative person. It made me to think, you know, there's questions that were put to me. It made me become a lot more um, emotionally in tune with myself. It, you know, it, I started to think about how I deal with conflict in my own life. I started to develop really good communication skills. 
um, a really good emotional well-being. And, you know, these are all some of the things that many of us lack um, in our society. You know, you hear about these stories of when someone does something wrong to someone, they, our instant thought process, you know, within, within our media, newspapers, whatever it is, is retribution. Um, yep. And, you know, and our story shouldn't really be exceptional because this should just be the normal response to, you know, to to hate or to to pain, you know, inflicting more pain when pain's been caused is, you know, counterproductive. We see that with, you know, wars around the world or whatever it is. Um, and so, yeah, it's sad that, you know, I'm put on a platform where it's like, oh, this guy's become rehabilitated. You know, this should be the story, you know, this should be the norm. You know, we should be reporting about the guy who went back to prison and being like, wow, you know, how have we failed this person? We shouldn't be putting the person on a platform who stopped committing crime because he's such an exception. Um, so we have a long way to go, but um, I'm confident that we'll, we'll get there and we'll make, we're making headway. I, I am very confident that you're all going to get there too. And as I said, I will do my best to help in any way I can. We have a couple of minutes left now before the end of the show, so I want to uh, get back in touch with Joan and, and David and last comments. Anything you'd like to, to cover that or share that we haven't covered? Jacob um, hasn't just, um, through restorative justice, um, sorted out his own life. He's helped rehabilitate some of his own gang members, which he doesn't always talk about. Oh, that's fabulous. Through <laughs> Jacob. Um, you got the young man to university, another one. So even in his own gang, they've they've seen the changes in Jacob, and Jacob's helped them. So that's another way that restorative justice works behind the scenes. Unbelievable! It's really impressive. Ah, uh, Jonah, I'm I'm sending you a, a virtual hug right now. I have. So so much admiration for you as a mother, as a person, as a woman, your courage, your compassion, your leadership, your sensitivity. It's just, it's just remarkable. Both you and David have done an outstanding job in handling the challenge that you faced in dealing with the loss of your beautiful son and, and just how you have embraced Jacob with your compassion is, is really an example that the world really should see and hear about. Thank you for sharing what you have with us today. And David, any last words you'd like to share with the audience? Oh, thank you for giving us this opportunity, you know, to, to get the word out uh, to, to um, the United States, because the more people that know, the better. Um, you know, we're, we're doing positive things, and um, rather than having a lot of negativity and anger, um, we're moving forward and, yeah, you know, it's making a difference and that's very important. And it's what James wanted. I know that's the sort of person he was and he'd be very pleased with um, what we are all doing. Well, I'm, I'm so glad that you brought James up and I, I feel like he's on the show as well with us today. And so we send our loving thoughts and prayers to him as he rests in peace right now and I'm sure that he's looking down and just filled with pride over how you're all handling this. The loss you can never recover from really but at the same time what you have created the positive 
energy that you have created from such a devastating loss is is really admirable. And Nicola, just last comments from you before we head out. Again, just want to thank you for the opportunity to to share um, for the the benefits of restorative justice. Um, for us as an organisation, you know, our, our kind of slogan is empowering people, changing lives, and I think that that's what restorative approaches can do. And I think Jacob summed it up very well in terms of, um, you know, it's not about doing restorative justice to somebody or, or, or for somebody. It's about being restorative and applying those skills to, to everyday life, whether that's in the workplace, in the community, in schools, in the criminal justice system, because that impact that it can have on, on changing people's lives for the better and making those long-term sustainable changes is what, you know, it's all about. Thank you all for being on the program, really. It was truly an honor to have you with me today. And as I said before several times, I will do everything in my power to spread your message. This is really a testament to the human spirit. Joan and David, you incurred such tremendous personal loss and yet ended up being the saviors that helped turn around the life of Jacob Dunn. These are the kinds of stories that are happening in real time, in real life. And again, your love and compassion inspired Jacob to see the error of his ways. And now he is such an amazing young man. Your loving spirits were the impetus for him to have this extraordinary transformation. And what a beautiful transformation it is. So again, I congratulate you all. Please go to www.remedyuk.org, which is R-E-M-E-D-I-U-K dot org. Donate some money. Look at their videos. Hear other stories. See how restorative justice is changing lives. And get your leaders to incorporate like programs in your areas. If you go to my website at gobehindthecurtain.com, you will find uh, links to Jacob and to Joan and David. I know they run also a charity, a bike-a-thon once a year. And I will put something up on the website about the One Punch program and, again, about Remedy UK. To all of you that tune into this show, I am so grateful for you listening. Pass our show link on to your mailing list and help me spread this information out and into the world. Go to GoBehindTheCurtain.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. It's been great spending this time with you. I'm sending you a virtual hug from Behind the Curtain. Until next time, peace, everyone. Thank you.